If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in John chapter 5, looking at verses 14 through 18. And we have been in a series through the Gospel of John for uh, roughly 24 weeks now. And uh, if you think that's long, there's uh, more than five chapters, so it's going to be a little bit longer. Um, And that's going to be a really good thing uh, because there's such beautiful uh, richness and depth uh, to the character and the work and the deity and the person of Jesus. And so that's really what we're looking at. And in the text that we're seeing today, we're, we're going to be talking about what happens when people are healed and Jesus performs signs and wonders and still some are offended. Now, this is something that, that surprisingly those two often go together in the Gospel of John. Uh, but really the main issue is not that he is doing signs. It's not that he is performing wonders and, and caring for the physical needs The issue to these Jewish leaders that's going to come up is that he's claiming to be God in the flesh, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who has come to reconcile us to God the Father, and that when we believe upon him, we are saved. And so really, to the the religious and the rebellious, they reject this. They're highly offended by this. And so here, this is where we are going to see the offense and the issue come up in the text. And remember, it's not isolated to the text. This is often an issue that comes up today. Because even people today attempt to make Jesus fit into whatever their worldview was or whatever their worldview is. And so the reality is that really there's no evidence to support someone's portrait of Jesus in their own mind. In fact, they usually have to ignore much of what Jesus did, and perhaps, and even uh, importantly and ultimately, they have to ignore what Jesus said. Because according to the average non-believing person in today's world, Jesus was a man who lived a long time ago and taught some really good moral practices. But really, according to the historical Christian tradition, according to the Bible, It clearly teaches that Jesus is the second person in the Trinity, that he was and he is fully God and fully man, that he was born of a virgin and he lived a sinless life, that at the end of his life he died on the cross for our sins, and not just for our example, but for our sins, and he rose bodily from the dead. And so if you didn't catch that, those two Jesuses are very, very different. And if you didn't know, the second one tends to get more reaction and more opposition. And the reason for this is because it really butts up against our ideas and our ways. And so really, we're going to see this in the text as we come to see, again, a changed man coming face to face with Jesus who going away really proclaims, really goes public with Jesus. And in the midst of that, those who are in opposition to who Jesus is and the authority that he has. And so as we go to read our text and apply it this morning, what we're going to learn is that we are to preach Christ, that his work points to God because he is equal with God. If you're taking notes this morning, those are your fill-in-the-blanks, and if you're new, we just one of the things we like to do here is just give that to you right out of the gate for you to see uh, kind of a synopsis of here's where we're going in the text, and what we're going to see is that we are to preach Christ, that his work points to God, 
because he is equal with God. So we're going to read in John chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that as we spend the next uh, 30 minutes or so looking at your word and and at this passage, we're, we're not doing so by trying to figure out on our own uh, how to live and where to go from here, but God, we look to your word. So God, I pray that as we, we do that, that you would convict us, that you would guide us, and that you would point us to Jesus. God, I pray that you would guide this time and that your spirit would really, uh, really point us to what is true. So God, we love you, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you notice, uh, we're looking at verse 14 again, uh, because what follows is the result of what Jesus did by his mercy uh, to a man who was broken and helpless. And Jesus was not just seeking for this man to just be healed physically, but for this man to also be made whole. And so we saw in the verse that, that after this man was healed and after he has an interaction with the Jewish leaders, Jesus finds him. It says he found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. Now see, Jesus' response is both a rebuke and a command to the man. The Jesus, Jesus often does this because he wants to direct the person toward himself, toward what is true. We saw how he did this with the woman at the well, and we saw this how he did this with the official whose son was sick. And here he even does this with the healed man. That Jesus is reminding him of the gift that he has received and the life to now live. And in this, it's that Jesus cares deeply about a greater need. And so understand, I want you to catch this in in this text. God is always after the man as a whole. God is always after the man as a whole. And so here, Jesus is pointing beyond a physical healing because it's not just the physical or the emotional need, but it's also his heart and his soul need that Jesus cares about. And so this is why Jesus says, sin no more. That where the man's life was previously defined by waiting at the pool, focusing on the water, being sick and broken for 38 years, what Jesus is calling him to is a life defined by living in holiness because of a Savior who made him whole. And so in this, we see that God is always after the man as a whole. 
I mean, think about how we've seen this as Jesus has engaged and interacted with the man. Remember, as John has told us about this exchange back in verse 6, it's that Jesus saw him. And in verse 14, it's that Jesus found him. And what I, what I think is so valuable for us to understand is this is true of many of us. That in the midst of helplessness and brokenness and confusion and even distorted focus, Jesus seeks us and finds us, much like the man at the pool. I mean, the man at the pool was not seeking Jesus, but Jesus was seeking him. That he was not focused on Jesus, but Jesus found him. And so what we need to understand is that Jesus had no intention of walking away from this man and leaving him with nothing more than a healed body. And so as Jesus finds the man, he gives him an important instruction and command, and to that, it changes the man's life completely. Now see, what I want you to understand about this and think about is the man before he meets Jesus and then after I mean, remember in verse 5, it it says that he was sick and broken and helpless at the pool. For 38 years, he is at this place for the same hope and growing hopeless. I mean, I don't know if you can relate to that man, but when you have been dealing with something for 38 years and then you are healed, that changes you completely. That absolutely changes your whole life. And so as we look again at verse 14 this week, what we see is both the subject and the substance of the man's sharing in verse 15. We see both the subject and the substance. And so we see that verse 15 says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Now here, there is no doubt in my mind that the man returns to the Jewish leaders in order to point to Jesus. That it's not to accuse or to slander or to give up information that they might uh, seek after Jesus and call him out, but the longing of the man's heart is to point to Jesus. And so really, this is his simple message. Jesus healed me. He's the one who made me whole. And Jesus is why I'm coming to you. And so really, church, this is true even in our lives. This is the gospel applied. That God saved you and I through Jesus while we were broken and crippled and blind and dead in sin. And so now for you and I, as we go to tell others about how we have been changed completely, it's that we point people to Jesus that it's Jesus who healed us, Jesus who saved us, and Jesus who made us whole. And so really, this is ultimately something that all of us should be doing with our own lives, that we should be going out and returning to places and preaching Christ. I mean, listen, I I can stand up here and and preach Christ and preach a sermon that, that really talks about the change of the gospel, but also Each of us is to be preaching a sermon every day with our lives. I mean, this church is how we are to preach Christ in the common places. Because when the church is gathered together, we reflect on and we apply the word of God. And when the church is spread out and in the the weekly routine and in the common places with others, we're to live and to share the word of God. 
And so when we gather here together, understand when I'm preaching a, a sermon and we're spending this time, really, we put this time at the center of our hour so that God's word is the primary focus. But that should also be true of our lives. And so let me ask you, what sermon are you preaching with your life? What sermon are you preaching with your life? Who are you going to and telling, it was Jesus who healed me? I mean, who are you getting in front of and sharing honestly? Listen, you may reject me, you may hate me, but I just want you to know, I need you to know, it was Jesus who healed me. And understand, some of you are going to say and respond, man, I don't, I don't feel like I'm good with words. I, I can't say all these things, but look at how simple the, the truth of this is. To go out and to share, it was Jesus who healed me. And so let me ask you, church, what kind of sermon are you preaching with your life? Now, see, that may create some confusion because you think of preaching in the context of this environment. So you're kind of thinking, okay, who do I gather in my uh, living room and and where do I get a a music stand and and, and how do I put my notes together? No, I'm, I'm talking about proclaiming and teaching and earnestly advocating for truth. That this is what should be true in our lives. And really, if we're not doing that, if we're not doing that, then I think what is the scary question is, have we earnestly and honestly encountered the Jesus of the Bible? I mean, have we cried out to him and sought him and earnestly confessed that he is Lord? Because if we have, then the result is a desire, a longing to proclaim and to share. It was Jesus who healed me. That it was Jesus who saw me. That it was Jesus who found me. And ultimately, it is Jesus alone who saves me. But see, what we need to understand further is that this type of sermon is not one that is always welcome. I'm not telling you to go out and do something that is absolutely easy, and if you haven't done it yet, you've just forgotten. You and I both know to preach this kind of sermon with our life is very difficult, just like we see in the text today. That those, there are those who hear of this healing, and the Jesus who saves and reconciles, and really they are opposed to this person and to this work. But that doesn't mean we stop preaching with our lives. It just means that our preaching and our living needs to continue to point to Jesus. Really, that should always be the aim of every sermon preached and every believer's life, that we preach and point to Jesus alone, even when there's opposition and even when there's conflict. And so we see this in the text. In verse 16 that we read, we see that the Jewish leaders are really getting riled up and they're really irritated by this news that the man is sharing. In verse 16, John tells us, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now here, as we saw last week, we're back to the same issue. And isn't it interesting when Jesus goes head to head with the Jewish leaders, often the issue is the same often their issue is always the same with Jesus. They're, they're not always bringing him new things or different things. Often the issue is on the same subject. 
And see, if you remember from looking at verses 9 through 14 last week, the Sabbath was a big part of the discussion. And rightfully so, because in the Jewish culture, Sabbath is a big deal. I mean, this again is going to be the focus of the conflict and opposition. That Sabbath was the practice commanded by God for his people, Israel, to keep. And really, it is still practiced today by Jews, and, and the Sabbath as the Lord's Day is still to be kept. And see, the purpose of Sabbath is to rest from work and activity, to really fix yourself entirely on the Lord on his day. And so this is why the Sabbath is called the Lord's Day. And here, keeping of the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant between Israel and the Lord. And so two themes really govern the Sabbath, and that is to remember and to observe. And so the focus of the Sabbath is that the Jewish observer also remembers that freedom comes with following God. Now, an important side note for us to understand, as I mentioned last week, for those of us who don't have much history on Sabbath, what this means for Christians today is really that traditionally Christians have held their primary corporate worship services on Sundays. And really, New Testament Christians do this because this is in celebration of Christ's resurrection, which occurred on a Sunday. And so it's important to note that there is no explicit biblical command in the New Testament that either Saturday or Sunday should be the day of worship. We see this brought up by the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 and Colossians 2. But there are many explicit biblical commands that we are to worship. That it's not the specific day that matters as much as it is the subject and the substance of our worship. But see, in the text, this is an issue that's being brought up because Jesus has not yet died and been resurrected. The church has not yet been established. So there's an issue here about how and when to worship and to work. And so this is when Jesus healed the man at the pool. It was on the day of remembering and observing the Sabbath. And so this is where we continue to see this conflict back and forth. But see, in this, the Jewish leaders are opposing Jesus for working on the Sabbath. And really, they're claiming that he was breaking Jewish law. But he responded to them by pointing them to the fact that his work was God's work. In verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And see, in this verse, we see that Jesus is shifting the focus a little bit. That he's doing this to put the conversation in proper focus. That he does not dispute with the Jews as to whether they are right to criticize the lame man, but he denies that they can criticize him. And of course, for those who believe, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we, we see and we think of this verse and say, God is the creator of the universe who is holding all things together. And of course, he can work and will as he sees fit. He is sovereign. But see, to those who are opposed to Jesus, specifically these Jewish leaders in the text, they see this very differently. 
See, the Jewish leaders did not hear the divine freedom of God in the flesh. What they hear is someone who is in front of them saying, God and I are in unity, we are together, and we are one. And see, what Jesus is essentially saying in this verse, in verse 17, is this was the Father working through me on the Sabbath. And see, the Sabbath was intended for man's rest. And the focus was to be on God. And so the purpose of this healing at the pool, which had caused so much conflict and opposition, was intended to focus and point to God and his work. And so really, this is what we see all throughout Jesus' work, that his work points to God and his authority. And so church, don't, don't miss this great point in the text. Jesus' work points to God and to his authority. And so this is why the Sabbath is such a big deal, because this should be at the heart and the focus of the Lord's day. But the reality is that there is really a conflict often between our physical work and our spiritual work. I mean, Henry Alford once said, man indeed must cease from his work if a higher work is to find place in him. See, so the intent of ceasing from our work should be to focus on God and his work. But that's not what the focus is here from the religious leaders. See, the the religious leaders rightly understood to be that Jesus was claiming equality with God and speaking of God as his father, but they rejected his claim as blasphemy. And because they were really rejecting him, they missed this. I mean, even though they hear him saying he is equal with God, they are still denying and rejecting the truth. And so see, by Jesus saying in verse 17, God is my father. By him making it personal versus addressing God as our father or simply God, John makes it clear that the Jews understood Jesus saying, I am equal with God. And so the Jews, just like people today, were shocked because even if Jesus matched the identity of what they assumed was going to be the Messiah, they really did not view the Messiah as fully divine. That they believed that the Messiah would come from the line of David and be a man, a wonderful man, but in no way they really did they think that he would somehow be God. They instantly, in fact, changed their accusation from Sabbath-breaking to blasphemy. And so now the conversation is getting even more intense in the text. And so this makes them want to kill Jesus. And so this is why John clarifies in verse 18 and saying, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now see, in the ESV translation, this verse is under a header that just makes it so clear what John is saying at the end of the verse, that Jesus is equal with God. 
And see, this text is a clear example that when people are confronted with the truth and it really butts up against their belief or their ideas, great opposition and conflict can arise. And so the Jewish leaders didn't like what Jesus was saying. They didn't like what he was teaching and ultimately what he was claiming. But where one can say they don't believe Jesus was God or or that he is equal with God, they can't say that that wasn't what Jesus was communicating in this text. It's very clear. Even further, John makes it very clear. But see, the reason there is so much opposition and objection to Jesus over this issue is because the Jews were very loyal and devout to monotheistic belief. And so really, there's, there's two systems of belief that we see it definitely throughout Scripture, is that the Jews were about monotheistic belief, one or, or single. And that's the doctrine or belief that there is only one God. And then you have polytheism, plural. And that's the belief or the worship of more than one God. And so let me, let me tell you and, and explain to you, Christians are monotheistic, Okay, just so we we understand what team we're on. Christians are monotheistic, yet we maintain that the nature of the one true God is triune. And so three persons, one God. But here, to the Jewish mind, they're really confused by what Jesus is saying, and they're concerned because it's butting up against their understanding and their belief. And so to the Jewish mind, Jesus' claim to be God to them was blasphemous because to them it suggested the idea of two gods. But Jesus' claim here was that he was God in human form. And see, we've seen this truth in the Gospel of John, that Jesus isn't coming as another God. He is coming from God. And so in John chapter 1 We saw this in verses 1 through 3. John gives us this beautiful picture of understanding the triune God. When he says, In the beginning was the Word, and that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Sounds like we can't have God without Jesus. And then we see down in verse 14 of chapter 1 that we studied at the beginning of our series when John writes, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so church here, what John is is writing that we have seen is that the Word, the Son of God, He is God, and the Father is also God. The Son is not the Father. He is with the Father. He is uncreated and eternal. And so let me tell you that there is so much more to say about the doctrine of the Trinity, the the teaching that God exists as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But listen, as we look briefly at this, it's the incredible truth that the Word, Jesus, is real and personal and active and true. And so what the Jews had missed 
is that the word is God's ultimate self-disclosure of himself in the person of his son. That his presence, where it was once uh, limited to his people, the Jews, has now been put on display, has now been perfectly presented in Jesus. And so he brought his tent to us and settled down in our world. See, what that means is that for 33 years, he lived in our world. He took on the form of a man. He came and became one of us, displaying his presence in the Son. And so this is God in the flesh. This is God's ultimate self-disclosure of himself in the person of his Son. And so this church is what we are to preach with our lives. That God is a sending and a saving God. That Jesus is who he says that he is. And that this is the greatest news ever. And see, what we're going to learn more over the next several weeks is we're going to talk more on the authority of Jesus and the witnesses to Jesus and, and all of that that ultimately he is true that he is true and Jesus is who he says that he is and that ultimately he is God in the flesh. But see, I think there's an important question that I think we need to ask. I think there's an important question that we need to ask both for those that are seeking and both those that are skeptics of Jesus. It's that what, really the question is, what do you do with Jesus and his claims of identity being equal with the Father. Because there's going to be a lot of people who are going to ask, is Jesus God? And as we're seeing in the text, there's going to be opposition to this. And see, what's dangerous is that most people deal with this, this what they would call spiritual question by making an intellectual conclusion that Jesus is just a great teacher, a good teacher, or even a great prophet who once lived. But really, if we're going to be honest with ourselves and come face to face with the Jesus of Scripture, it's that his claims and his actions are either true or false. There are no in-betweens. I mean, C.S. Lewis popularly uh, brought up the argument that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And I think that's really a, a, a valuable question we need to, to bring to the table because there is no uh, in the middle. There is either for or against. And so who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just some good teacher or rule breaker or, or, or savior? And, and more importantly than what you would say who Jesus is to you, what does his word say? about who he is. I mean, I asked you the question before, how do you know that you didn't make up what you know about Jesus? It's because we know truly from his word. And see, if Jesus is God, just to be clear, he is. He must not just be admired and respected. He must be worshiped. If Jesus is God, we must not follow his teachings because it's a good idea, but because he is God and we must obey him. And if Jesus is God, 
it means his blood was shed for our sins and that is of infinite value because it's God's blood and God's sacrifice. And if Jesus is God, then our creator has entered this broken world. He has landed, he has conquered and is now setting all things right. And so church, let me tell you, Jesus is God. And see, for the Christian, that means something completely different than the skeptic. Because for the skeptic, that means this whole idea of interacting with Jesus, but really for the believer, that means a submission beneath the truth of who Jesus is. And how do we know that? By the word of God that you and I are not to stand beside or above or in front of the word of God, but beneath the word of God, because it is Christ's word to us of who he is. And so to the Christian who holds to this truth that Jesus is God, an active member of the triune God, means an active submission that says, I must worship him, I must obey him, and everything else in my life is defined by the fact that Jesus is God. And see, the beautiful reality is that Jesus being equal with God is that it shows us and it confronts us And it directs us to the reality that Jesus is the only Savior that will ever truly save. Because you and I can build up all kinds of things to try and save ourselves and make ourselves whole, but nothing will ever save but Jesus. Nothing will ever make us whole but Jesus. I mean, remember the man at the pool sitting there, broken and lame and helpless for 38 years. And remember that his greatest need was for someone to help him into the pool. This is what he says back to Jesus. This is my greatest need. I have no one to help me. That his problem was that without help, he couldn't do anything. And so let me tell you, Jesus, God's full disclosure of himself reached out and extended grace to him in the midst of brokenness and helplessness. And after that, Jesus called him to a life of holiness to preach this message that his life was now defined by living holy because of a savior who made him whole. And so as we come to a close this morning, maybe you find yourself in the place of that man. Whatever you've been dealing with, you find yourself helpless and broken and in need. And maybe you're just kind of coming up with all these answers on your own of, man, I, I just need someone to help me. I, this is what my focus is. This is what the resolve would be. But we've seen over and over and over in the text, the great need we have is for a Savior. And let me tell you what we see as Jesus is God. It is that we have a great Savior for our need. That we would cry out to him and confess, Jesus, you are Lord. You are God in the flesh, and I am a sinner in need of a savior. 
See, church, this is the incredible invitation of the gospel. That God, who is righteous and holy, has sent his son to die for the unrighteous and the unholy, putting his perfect and holy son on the cross in your place so that when you believe in Christ by faith, you may have life in him and you may have relationship with God as his child. This is the incredible invitation to those that are broken and lost and hopeless and sinner. And so church, as we come to a close, I want to ask you an important question. As we see all of those in the text that are focusing on different things, as we met the man at the pool and he's focusing on the water and we meet the religious leaders and, and he's focusing on the different, they're focusing on the different aspects of their tradition. But Jesus challenges this and points them to himself. And so let me ask you, are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus? Because what Jesus says true in his word is that if you are helpless and broken and in need like the man at the pool, then look to Jesus. See, this is the reality that if we see a great need for a, for a savior, then God is not slow to reveal to us that we have a great savior for our need. And so this morning, I would encourage you to ask that question. Consider that. That this is the truth of God displayed in the person and work of Jesus. That Jesus is God of whom we are to look to. Let's pray.